0: jenna ellis in the morning on american family radio one of the president's ride or die defenders is legal advisor jenna ellis
1: it's such a political prosecution and a political persecution quote this to me is a clear violation of the fourth amendment it's revisionist originalism tolerance just isn't a two-way street with the democrats and i think that tells you all we need to know
2: newsmax contributor and former legal counsel to president trump jenna ellis
1: Well, happy Friday, everyone, and I am so excited to take the first uh, little bit of this show today to introduce a movie that is actually a documentary that is going to be released uh, in August of this year that is telling the story of what happened in the broader scope to the essential church during the COVID pandemic shutdown, and this is a very important story uh, because I think that it it gives a perspective that not a lot of people really uh, fully understood in the midst of everything going on with the COVID pandemic worldwide, not just here in America, uh, but worldwide to the church and how uh, government actors and government agents were purposefully and intentionally trying to shut down churches, and there were a few pastors that in the midst of all of the COVID pretext and narrative stood firm that no, church needs to be open and church is essential, and there is a mandate from scripture that requires that Christ is the head of the church, not The government, whether that be the government here in the United States or any form of government that we've ever had in any country across world history. That is just true that Christ is the head of the church, and we as faithful Christians need to make sure to always protect the essential nature of the church. And so uh, this documentary is actually titled, aptly, The Essential Church. And the trailer for this documentary came out today, and I want to play it for you now. This is the audio. You can go to uh, the Essential Church and the, that website, and you can actually watch the full trailer. And also, if you are listening to uh, the podcast version of this radio program later, um, you can go and see uh, the video on it as well. But, um, but the audio for purposes of radio today um, is, is incredibly well done, really important. So this is The Essential Church.
2: God's truth is enduringly true throughout all the generations It transcends culture. The church is always going to be an embattled people. If it's swimming with the tide, it's not being the church of Jesus Christ. Look to the past, learn from the past, because the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. China has more than 200 confirmed cases of coronavirus, it's called. The entire state of California ordered to stay at home, that's 40. 40- California has some of the strictest policies leveled against churches. Gavin Newsom's executive order threatens jail time and a $1,000 a day fine. Government stopping people from going to church, Dr. Fauci. When I went into the White House, when I sat in on the task force meetings, was a shocking level of gross incompetence.
0: The mortality rate from the virus was 0.2 percent. You know, 99.8 percent survival, rather than the three or four percent mortality that the that people are saying at the time. The culture and the understanding of the people of Grace Church has always been: not only do you obey government, but you honor government.
1: Thousands of people in the streets, but you can't have church. So this is the essential church documentary, and um, of course you heard uh, Pastor John MacArthur's voice, and you also heard my voice in uh, in that trailer. And I'm very uh, proud and privileged to be a part of this documentary because, of course, I was one of uh, the key attorneys representing Grace Community Church and John MacArthur during this fight. So. Uh, you can go to essentialchurchmovie.com. You can see that trailer and joining me now to discuss more about this project and why this story is so incredibly important to tell is Shannon Halliday, who is the writer and director of this documentary and works for GCC Productions. And Shannon, you and I have gotten to know each other, of course, through uh, the filming of this documentary. And... Um, and I, I'm just so grateful that you are completing this project. What is the story that you want to tell?
0: Yeah, thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, the story is, you know, it starts with Grace Community Church, our church here in um, Los Angeles. And as you know, the, the lockdowns were the, the strictest, I think, in the country in California. Um, maybe we, we are come close to New York. Maybe they're the same as far as their strictness um but it was it was pretty rough on the church and we um we shut down like everybody else and said okay let's let's go along with this you know we don't know what this is it the whole world was telling us we were all going to die um and we went along with it but soon after that we started to see that there was something fishy about this and the data wasn't uh adding up And people started just coming back to church, and our elders had to work through this biblically and figure out how to, uh, you know, well, we have to be unanimous. That's that's a very uh, important element of our elder board. We're we're unanimous. We're we're elder-ruled, and our elders have to be unanimous on their decisions. So at that point, the elder board wasn't completely unanimous, and they had to struggle through this and figure out biblically why they can say, we can open up and defy the government. And, um it's basically that story, but as we figured out these biblical concepts and fleshed out these concepts of of what we should do as Christians and what the Bible was telling us to do, we had to study church history, we had to um look at it just globally over the last two thousand years and what the church has done, and as we looked into that, we realized this is a common conflict that happens over and over and over and over again in church history. And there's biblical examples of it as well. So um, through that exploration and that journey of just understanding biblically what we're supposed to do, that's, that's the first part of this story. But then we venture out and we also show uh, a global aspect of it, mainly in Canada, where we uh, look at the story of James Coates, where he was arrested and um, he was in jail for 35 days in a maximum security prison. Um, and it's basically that story and then the, the decision to, to say, hey, we're, we're going to sue the government. And if you would have asked anybody at Grace Church prior to this, you know, we're not a church that sues the government. We're not a church that defies the government. We're not really a super political church. Um, so this would have been, if you would have told us, you know, a year before this happened, we would have said, oh, no way, that's not what we do. So it was. It's a really interesting story because of that uh, dynamic, um, and yeah, that's yeah. basically it. And then through this story, we show why the church is essential and always has been essential. Um, in, yeah, in, and, and I want and I want
1: to go back though it, it, to that key right there, um, Shannon Halliday, who's the writer director of uh, this documentary, The Essential Church. And, um, and it's coming out in August. You can view the trailer again at EssentialChurchMovie.com. And that, that key right there of if you had told anyone a year before this that John MacArthur was going to exercise civil disobedience and the elder board of Grace Community Church was going to defy the government, sue the government... I think everybody would have said you're in a total parallel universe fiction, right? And I remember um, my mom actually was the first person to send me the statement from the elders that was uh, was put out publicly. And because we've followed uh, Grace Community Church and and John MacArthur, my mom actually graduated from uh, the Masters University. Uh, with her master's degree in biblical counseling, and so Pastor John actually conferred her master's degree on her years ago. Um, so, so we've been a family very closely affiliated with um, all of the work at Grace Community Church. And when she sends me this statement, um, I remember just just calling her and saying, "Wow, this is an incredible moment in." I think church history and American history that you have someone like pastor John and the elder board who have been, you know, staunch advocates for um, giving respect and deference to leaders, even when you disagree um, and being the church within civil society and, and, and not political. But at this moment, it told me something very important in that moment that I specifically remember, which is that this moment was going to be so important for the future of the church in America specifically and how Grace Community Church was taking a stand and being leaders in that moment was going to be uh, predictive for the model of how future church leaders need to respond when the government is overreaching, overstepping, and actually contravening the constitutional mandate to government. Um, so, so that part was really important, I think, Shannon, to just set this up as, um, as understanding who Grace Community Church is and who John MacArthur is as well.
0: Yeah, uh, I mean, we're we're a church that you know, there are some folks that, out there that are very much about Christian nation building. Um, I wouldn't say that's necessarily a popular view in Christianity, but we definitely are not that. We don't. We, we, we don't try to go out and build a Christian nation or legislate or things like that. We're, we're not very political. So for us to get politically involved is definitely a new avenue for us, um, just theologically and all of that. So, But the reality is, is that what they don't understand about Pastor John is he doesn't compartmentalize, and he brings his Christian faith, his worldview to all life. And it doesn't matter what it is, because the prophetic voice, the Word of God, he goes into all spheres. We don't uh, leave that behind when we enter into what we should do as a citizen of the United States. We're to be good stewards of that, and we bring our Christian worldview to that. And the result of that isn't really what's important. The result is, the, the most important thing is just to be faithful. Uh, we're called to be faithful in all spheres that we live in uh, to our, our King, Christ.
1: Absolutely. And and I can remember um, very early on Pastor John telling me that exact same thing, that we just simply need to be faithful. And he said to me, Jenna, I think we are going to learn a lot about God's providence and sovereignty uh, through this entire scope of, of the fight uh, to keep church essential and and uh, to make sure that that we are faithful, and and what I also find interesting, and and Pastor John, of course, was on this program um, on Wednesday of this week. So if you missed that, go back and listen to that episode because um, you know he talked about this as well. That the outcome, of course, was unknown at the time. Um, he had no idea that we would ultimately uh, have the victory that we did. Uh, but his goal and mission throughout the entire time, no matter whether I I brought to him good news, bad news, or something in between of of where we were at in the stage of the proceedings, his response was always the same, which was, okay, thanks for telling me that Jenna. And what would the Lord have us do next? And he never wavered from that. And I think that is also an important part of this story. And I'm talking with Shannon Halliday, who is the writer director of the essential church church, documentary and you can go and find that at essentialchurchmovie.com and we will be right back with more to talk about the essential church and why this story is so incredibly important to tell not just for church history but for the future of standing firm on the word of god we'll be right back with more on jenna ellis in the morning
2: This is Jenna Ellis in the
1: morning. Welcome back. And we're talking about the Essential Church documentary that will uh, be coming out streaming on I believe it's August 31st and uh, of this year, and you can go to essentialchurchmovie.com and view that trailer. And I'm talking with my guest today, uh, Shannon Halliday, who's the writer and director of the documentary for uh, Grace Community Church or GCC Productions. And uh, Shannon, we were talking about you know why this story is so important to tell in um, the greater scope of history, and I kind of want to walk through your perspective as the writer and director because. You also have the unique perspective of, of having seen this story actually lived out. I mean, you're not someone who's come in, you know, just from Hollywood saying, all right, I need to interview people, figure out a script, but don't have any sort of involvement yourself um, in the story. So I think that gives you a unique perspective. So how did you approach um, telling this story and paring this down um, to just the time frame? I mean, h- how long is this, just an hour, 90 minutes, or, or what's the full length of the documentary?
0: Yeah, um, we're actually still in the editing process, and I still have, I don't know if I'm supposed to tell you this, but uh, <laughs> we have some more filming to do uh, in April. So it's, I'm, not only did I do a first draft, we writing it uh, initially to pitch to the elders, um, but then um, as I'm in the post-production, I'm crafting the story there as well and seeing um, what else I need to shoot? Because when you interview people, you know, you ask people questions thinking, you know, where the story goes, but then you learn new things and you discover how you might want to do things differently. So uh, we're technically still in the writing process, believe it or not. But um, uh, yeah, and it's been a blast. I'm loving it. Um, that's that's so- amazing. Uh, what was your question again?
1: So so how, how how are you figure? I guess you're figuring out, um, as the process is still continuing uh, to the very last day until this is released, um, how did you approach what you wanted to tell in the story, and how are you figuring out what pieces to keep in, what to edit out, and yeah. how to tell this story?
0: Yeah. Well, you keep it to the central conflict, and that central conflict is between the state and the church. And, What's fascinating about that conflict is that it is really this ancient conflict. I mean, you can go all the way back to Exodus, and the Lord is telling Moses, go tell the government that you're coming with me. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there's this conflict, this, and it's just fascinating how throughout the Bible, is, it, it explains that there's this separation between church and state, and that we get that concept from the Bible. Um, I mean, even as I've discovered in in interviewing people and in my own study, is that America isn't America without the Bible. It isn't America without the church. So, if you want to talk about the essential element of the church, historically, it is the most essential thing on earth. You do not have America the way it is without the concepts that were fleshed out over the last 2,000 years through church history of understanding biblically the relationship between state and church. So everything really revolved around that. All my interviews revolved around that, um, and it's showing that essential value. So I make choices based on really that central conflict.
1: Yeah, and, and that really makes sense. And I love that you bring this to the broader scope of world history as well, because that conflict between church and state and the authority that each of those two spheres of government have, uh, that has been a conflict and um, and a concept that has been debated among theologians as well as uh, politicians and, you know, kings and their dominions uh, throughout world history. And we've seen that conflict and we've seen uh, that conflict either resolve biblically, which, um, of course, as we know, and as, as Pastor John has so well preached and articulated that from the Bible, uh, we have certain you know, all power of course is god's authority and he delegates uh to institutions that he has created which include his church which include the family which include uh, the civil government and he um in his wisdom has ordained and established Uh, what jurisdiction each of those spheres have. And I'm personally thankful that the family uh, doesn't have the ability to carry the sword, for example, um, because I think a lot of parents, especially if they had very strong-willed children like me, might have exercised capital punishment (laughs) far too early, right? So, So we all know that there are differences and distinctions with what civil society legitimately exercises in terms of authority versus the church with uh, spiritual discipline, with church discipline, with membership, with the roles between the sexes, how uh, women, of course, can exercise gifts in the church but cannot be members of the ecclesia, and we see that very clearly in scripture. Um, Just like in the family, women can't be husbands or fathers, and likewise, men can't be wives and mothers others um but both together are supposed to be parents and the family unit and marriage and church is supposed the church is supposed to have jurisdiction over the family unit in some aspects like for example marriage where the state in in my view biblically should get out of that business altogether and so you know as as we see this broader conversation about a separation of church and state it's not to say that the civil society or the government has no jurisdiction over the family over the church but it's separated and the church does not yield to the states in matters of the ecclesia the state cannot tell the church how to operate when and where and how it should be closed or open what decisions it should make what um, how to exercise church discipline uh, what to preach uh, what to counsel i mean all of those things are so critical and so getting back to this particular story, Shannon, I think it's so important that people understand this from a theological perspective, because all of this I know was was contemplated in this particular instance and responding to the state by the elder board to say, okay, what is uh, that separation and what is legitimate for the state to impose on the church and what isn't. And and that is true regardless of whether we have the U.S. Constitution or not. Um, that has been true since uh, the foundation of the world because God himself has remained true and he never changes and his authority never changes. Um, But here in America, we have this thing called the U.S. Constitution that we're so privileged that our founders in their wisdom protected the free exercise of religion and the ability of the church to not be overrun by the state or infringed upon in our liberty to be the essential church. And so, um, so what part of this, in terms of the documentary, focuses on that particular conflict and how um, the elder board throughout each of these critical stages in uh, dealing with the state and dealing with the lawsuit, how those deliberations occurred.
0: Yeah, are you uh, deliberation? You're talking about between the elders? Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, that's really interesting. And I think, you know, you hit on an important point there is that I think this documentary is going to be very unique in the sense that it's very tempting to just skip to the political and to the conflict in the scientific data. And while that is part of our story, and that is in our documentary, um, it's all downstream from theology. Culture, everything is downstream from theology, from spiritual warfare. Uh, and that's not the, a warfare of flesh and blood, as you know, it's a, it's a warfare of ideas truth versus lies. And so our elder board had to you know many of them were like okay well Romans 13 submit to the government that's what we're supposed to do. And then um I mean John MacArthur right off the bat was like okay well I'm going to be patient with this but right off the bat I know they're already out of their jurisdiction and that's where he was at inconsistently throughout the film. But there were other elder boards who were pretty much yeah I think we need to just just submit but then were challenged, and they started studying, and studying books like um, Martin Lloyd-Jones. Martin Lloyd-Jones in the 50s, um, between, I think, 54 and 62 or something like that, um, taught on Romans, and he got to Romans 13, and it's an excellent series. You can get it from Banner of Truth um, Publishing, and he started studying that, and he started studying, I mean, a myriad of different books that have been written throughout history. And over that time, he shares with us his theological journey of how he started in one place, but through his study came to the conclusion that, no, Romans 13 is actually a two-sided coin, because you can't remove it from the rest of Scripture. So when Jesus says, give unto Caesar what is Caesar, and give unto gods what is God's, well, we see that as traditionally, well, pay your taxes. But what it all means is, hey, there's a separation here. There is Caesar, and then there is God. And give unto Caesar what is Caesar's, but what is God, what is God? And there is a separation there. And so when the government comes into our jurisdiction, the Church, and says, I'm going to make decisions as the head of the Church, and I'm going to tell you how to worship. I'm going to tell you what to wear. What's going to be on your faith? I'm going to tell you that you can't sing. I'm going to tell you how many people can come. I'm going to tell you whether or not you can or cannot come. We cannot give that authority to the government. And you had mentioned earlier, there is there is an overlap there, but it is never an overlap between, when I say overlap, I mean between the the sphere of government and the sphere of, of the Church. But those overlaps between those two spheres are always in the in the um, spirit of service. So um, if they are dealing with something, let's say there was a, a crime that was committed on our campus, obviously the government would be on our campus solving that crime, and we would want them to do that, and that would be a service to us. But when they overstep that bound, and they overlap into authority, they are now saying, we're going to be the head of the church. And that, that conflict over the, who the head of the church is, is a central conflict throughout history, And that's why we traveled to Scotland, to London, um, to study where the heat of this battle over who's the head of the church happened. And that really happened throughout history, but culminated in the 1600s. And we tell the story of the Covenanters, and we look into what is called the Great Ejection, and that is when Charles II ejected over 2,000 pastors from their pulpits because they would not submit to him as head of the church.
1: And that's really, really well said, Shannon, because I think for a lot of people listening, and I hope that you're getting as excited as I am about this documentary and uh, and about it because it tells a bigger story than just what happened in L.A. County, which that story is very important, our specific um, little tiny piece of it in the course of church history. Um, but all of these concepts and what you mentioned are, um is that we as christians have to be theologically sound and understand what the bible is teaching before we encounter these hurdles and these life circumstances where we have to make some very critical decisions. Because if John MacArthur and the elder board of Grace Community Church had not been confident in uh, what Romans 13 teaches and the understanding deeply of theology and what um, the differences between giving unto Caesar what is Caesar's, but also giving unto God what is God's. and and I think you're right that we tend to only focus on one side of that coin, then we may not have seen uh, this debate and discussion within the Elder Board ultimately yield this statement that was very firm, that Christ is the head of the church, and that that is at no time, even in the midst of a so-called pandemic or any other pretext, at no time can the state come in and override the authority of Christ as the head of the church and the ecclesia. And so um, so in just the last few minutes that I have with you here, um, what is the main takeaway that you hope and that Grace Community Church as a whole hopes that pastors specifically um, and Christians generally take away from this documentary?
0: Yeah, I'd say it's a, it's a couple things. I'd say one of the things that I, I really want people to walk away with is that There is no compartmentalization in spiritual warfare, because I believe that we, as Americans, we've had it good for a long time, and we start to think that everything outside of the Church, or that's not speaking about specifically spiritual things, that that's a neutral area. I think that many of us look at government as a neutral ground, and those are neutral people, um, the government isn't neutral, and nobody in the government is neutral, and spiritual warfare is in all spheres of life, and we need to start thinking that way. Um, we need to start understanding that the enemy uses everything, and looking back in church history, we see that the enemy uses the government all locked. So you need to be aware of that. You need to be sensitive to that, and not just lay down. And that would be the second thing, is don't lay down. Uh, when when somebody comes at the church like that, don't, don't just close down. Think to yourself, okay, Christ is the head of the church. What does he want me to do? He's my king. He's my master. What does he want me to do in this moment? Um, mm. He calls me to respect the government, but he does not call me to lay down the church to the government. Mm. And I would hope that churches in the future would be emboldened um, for those churches who are kind of on the fence. I hope that this starts uh, something in their hearts and it manifests into uh, and grows into, you know, I want to just be obedient to Christ. And if this happens again in any form, I'm not going to just assume that it's for the best of the church. I'm going to do my due diligence and I'm going to yeah. submit to my Lord. I'm going to go to the scriptures. I'm going to make sure I'm not doing the wrong thing because I think there were too many churches that just shut down. And some of them, honestly, are still shut down and some yeah. of them have moved into more digital church, and that's been well, a detriment to the body.
1: Absolutely, and and I think that's very well said. Go to EssentialChurchMovie.com. I'm excited for this, and I think that that is so well said. We have to always stand firm and be faithful to the Word of God. We'll be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the Morning.
2: Speaking truth with love. This is Jenna Ellis in the Morning.
1: Welcome back on this last segment on a Friday. And I'm so grateful to be joined by my good friend, David Brody, who is the chief political analyst for CBN. And it's very important to note that is not CNN. There is a B in there. So very, very important. Um, but David, um, you know, you and I have talked a lot about the 2024 election. I know a lot of our listeners are very keenly uh, poised to to uh, consider What are the distinctions, particularly between Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis? And I think it's important to start there because while a lot of others have jumped in and will jump in the race, um, I believe this is going to boil down to Trump versus DeSantis. Um, So I want to start there. And, you know, what I think is so fascinating about this um, this debate is that really, We're talking about two very, very similar people in terms of their actual policy. So is this really more just a personality distinction, or how do you think that this is going to start unfolding once Ron DeSantis jumps into the race, which I I believe he will as soon as the legislative session in Florida wraps?
2: Yeah, I agree with you. I'm hearing potentially June, which is interesting because, you know, you would think with all the stories and all the talk about it that he's already in the race, (laughs) But uh, clearly he's not. But, but the expectation is he's going to get in. Uh, Jenna, look, I think this is twofold. I think there's the, the policy differences, and I'll talk about that in a moment, but also the, the actual personality differences. And I think both are going to be uh, at play here. Real quick on the policy differences, and let's just start kind of like overall uh, with this one country, Ukraine. I mean, where is DeSantis exactly on Ukraine? Not generically on Ukraine, not kind of like pie-in-the-sky Ukraine. Where is he as a presidential candidate on Ukraine? And the reason I bring up Ukraine is because I see Ukraine as a microcosm, if you will, of the metamorphosis, if you will, of the Republican Party right now into this populist party. Uh, a Donald Trump MAGA-type party. Uh, and and so we know the contours of that, right, as it relates to, you know, the gravy train on money needs to stop, stop with the any sort of F-16 talk, stop with, you know, all of that. Well, that's where MAGA is. That's where the base of the Republican Party is. Um, but where is Ron DeSantis exactly? And what happens when push comes to shove on this? I, I think he has not been detailed at all on Ukraine. He hasn't had to be. But when he does, it'll be interesting to see, because I think that will be a key delineation point as to how, quote, populist, how MAGA-ish DeSanta, uh, DeSanta, listen to me, I'm already thinking Christmas, uh, the <laughs> is. Jingle bells and all that. <laughs> yeah, that, that's right. Well, we'll see if it becomes Christmas for DeSantis, actually, uh, you know, come the primary season. So I, I think that's one key distinction. So that's what I'm going to be looking for. And then, of course, that plays into this idea. And let's be honest, it's maybe 10 percent, 15 percent of the party But uh, some of them are already talking about how DeSantis could be indeed this globalist. Uh, Maybe not a Nikki Haley-type globalist, but a globalist to some extent. Is he an interventionist? I mean, what is he exactly? So I I think this could be a key distinction. And then, of course, the personality uh, differences. This will be interesting. I mean, here's the truth of the matter. And, look, I don't know DeSantis very well at all, but my understanding of of what's going on here is that – He's not the best retail politicker in the world. I mean, he's not he's not Nikki Haley. Uh, Nikki Haley is very good retail politicking skill. She relates to people, if you will, uh, even though her policies are very 1987 and she's got policy issues. But uh, but she's good on the retail politicking. Uh, Donald Trump, you know, obviously we know all about Donald Trump. But one thing about Donald Trump, and you know this, Jenna, he's actually a kind soul and he is uh, funny, as we all know. And so there's something attractive in all of that with Trump. Uh, Ron DeSantis may have an unattractive problem uh, because ultimately, as we like to remember back in the day when George W. Bush was running, you know, it was kind of the voter wants to know who you're going to have a beer with. You know, who, uh, they want to vote for the person you're going to have a beer with.
1: Ron DeSantis may not be that guy. I mean, well, he, well, let me, he's let going to come. Let let me push back on that just a little bit because I think that, you know, if this was Um, a year, even six months ago, I would agree with you. But I think that he's actually made a lot of changes in his presentation style. Um, He's gone out more to try to, um, you know, to talk to people. I mean, I've met him in person and he was actually very engaging. I thought very likable, laughed, um, but, you know, know, was just very gregarious. You know, that kind of a person didn't come across as, as stiff. But also I think that for a lot of Americans, especially suburban moms, which you and I know from the last election, that was a huge demographic that uh that Trump failed to win over. And um Casey DeSantis and his whole family present really well. Now, the left is trying to slam them as like, oh, they're the new Kennedys. And I'm thinking that's the best that you that you've got because actually hearkening back to an era of, you know, of the family and kind of this wholesome Uh, look, you know, is is really, I think, appealing across both sides, especially in our current political climate. So I think that that Ron is DeSantis is doing a better job. But I also think his whole family and especially Casey DeSantis really, really helps his public image.
2: Well, I I think uh, that that clearly remains to be seen to see if the public agrees with, if not your assessment. And I say my assessment, it's not really my assessment. It's kind of what what the, the re, his reputation has been. Uh, now, once again, that might be people with a, clearly an agenda to to spread that. So we're going to see, and the voters will determine this. I also think the voters are going to determine something much larger, which kind of goes to the the, the challenge that Santos has ahead of him. Let's be honest. He's been vetted, but he's been vetted at the state level. He's not ever, uh, this just in, he has never run for president. Donald Trump has. Uh, and so, therefore, everything we know about Trump's already out there. We don't have a full vetting of Ron DeSantis yet from the liberal point of view, from the conservative point of view. He's going to be getting incoming uh, in all of that. And so, the, you know, a candidate, as you know, Jenna, will look always better on paper than in practice. And so now we're going to find out, can Ron DeSantis handle it? Look, ask Lion, Ted, and Little Marco how that worked out for them against Trump. So, so I just think that um, there, there's a lot to be said here. And I've got to tell you, I will never bet against Donald Trump. I mean, if a cat has nine lives, this guy's got 99 (laughs) and I just won't bet against him. So
1: so true. And, you know, our good friend Todd Starnes, who's a friend of this show uh, and joins us weekly, um, you know, he said with with that same, um, you know, no one has gone up toe to toe against Donald Trump and ever uh, come out unscathed and the loser in those scenarios um, on, you know, on the Republican side, that this will actually be a really good testing for Ron DeSantis to see if he has learned from, Uh, Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio and others who have stepped into the ring and didn't prevail. So I think that's going to be interesting, Um, you know, but let's also talk about David Brody. Um, about the the larger context here, because you know, you mentioned Nikki Haley, who, while you know, maybe retail politics are great. I mean, she's polling at like one or two percent. Um, you know, not great. Right. Um, she's, she, you know, she's she's not going to get a large percent of, of of the vote. Um, I think it's interesting that Vivek Ramaswamy is not even being put into a lot of these polls, which I think is <clears throat> is totally unfair to, um, you know, the the his base and whatever percentage um, you know would support him. But I think that's interesting. But if we look at, um, for example, New Hampshire Governor uh, Sununu, who may jump in and then, you know, Tim Scott from South Carolina and then Ron DeSantis in Florida, of course, and how kind of the the breakdown of possibly taking a couple of these key states um, in the Republican primary away from Trump? And how does that factor into the overall calculation? Because, of course, Trump is hoping that um, Nikki Haley and Tim Scott and Sununu and, and Pompeo, if he decides to jump in, even Mike Pence might take away, like Pence from Indiana, might take away from The overall bucket of DeSantis, but could it actually work on the flip side and, you know, take this from both of them, a few of these key states, and then they'll just have to fight over the remainder?
2: Yeah, I think it's a great point. I mean, ultimately, it becomes down to math and numbers and plurality and all of that. And I think that's what Donald Trump is hoping for, uh, to basically say, look, Nick, like you mentioned, Nikki Haley, and Scott, you just go through the list and say, you know, he's not going to get those numbers in the early primary, or excuse me, DeSantis won't get the early numbers in the primary states that he needs because it will be diluted by some of these other candidates. I think if you're Ron DeSantis, you've got to hope uh, and, and basically stay in this thing until you get the one-on-one with Trump. Uh, and, you know, into, into March, into April, and you're into Texas and some of those other later states. And that, then you see what happens when it's a one-on-one matchup. Uh, Ted Cruz got that matchup, uh, but he was already damaged at that point back in 2016, uh, and he wasn't able to recover. Um, once again, I, I got to tell you, my spidey sense here, Jenna, tells me, that the electorate, the GOP electorate, wants to give Trump one more chance to rectify the wrongs, if you will, of 2020. And I, I believe that that is where the, the the majority of GOP voters are. Having said that, I think Trump's got a lot of work to do with evangelicals, believe it or not, even though he had a great track record with evangelicals. And I say that simply because here's the truth of the matter. And it's a dirty little secret that maybe no one wants to talk about, but it's true. Donald Trump's support with evangelicals is not as strong as it will be or will not be as strong, most likely, as it would have been back in 2020 and definitely 2016. And that's because there's been a lot of water in the boat uh, there. You know, whether it be January 6th or the 2020 election, there's a lot of people that want to move on from what they consider the chaos. I'm talking about evangelicals. I'm talking about, that's right, the cracker barrel evangelicals, I call them, the ones that are going to the 11 a.m. service and are pretty straight-laced and traditional, and are just like, look, I'm kind of done with all the chaos. I'm talking about those evangelicals. We know them all. We have them in our families. They are done, and they are looking for a DeSantis, potentially a Pompeo, even a Nikki Haley, or a Mike Pence. Those are the people that Trump's going to lose. He's going to lose a percentage of them. I'm not saying it's going to be a mass exodus, but he's going to lose a percentage of them. And I think that's a challenge for, for President Trump.
1: Yeah, and I think you're right. You know, interesting that the kind of cracker barrel evangelical um, also <laughs> describes our, our friend Todd Starnes, who is ardently uh, pro-Trump. So, you know, so I think that this this does uh, cut both ways. But you're right that there are a lot of evangelicals or, or also, um, you know, just people overall that are, you know, just really, um, it, it's Trump fatigue, basically. And I think that the media is, is right. intentionally trying to characterize it that way as well. And they're trying to characterize it as, you know, well, this is just retribution for Trump, and don't we want somebody who you know actually wants to do the job of governing? And this is all just about you know Trump himself, and well, so I think they're trying intentionally to paint that picture. And I think in part for Trump, of course, you know w- when you when you lose an election that you know you think was um, was was not administered according to state law and had <clears throat> all of the the issues that clearly it did. Um, then, you know, you want to come back and you want to make that comeback. And so I think that's in part the motivation. But, you know, knowing Donald Trump personally, as, as you and I both do, I don't think that's his entire motivation. I think he genuinely wants to get back in the White House because he's sick and tired of what Joe Biden is doing to this country. Um, and, and he truly does want to fight for America.
2: Well, I agree with you on all of that. And you mentioned the word fight there at the end. And, you know, it's interesting. Here's a little memo to evangelicals who are soured on Trump. Hey, hold on for a second. Uh, look, the guy's a fighter. And you, you wanted a fighter all along. He's a fighter. And guess what? He's not just a fighter. He's a street fighter. And when those street fighters come along, you want a street fighter all of a sudden kind of now kind of tone it down or be a little different or there's too much water in the boat? look. You you loved when he was fighting, but now you just don't want him to fight as much, and he calls Ron, Ron DeSantis, and all that. Look, this is who he is. So you take it all, or you take nothing. You either want a fighter, or you don't want a fighter. But it's, it's part of his DNA. And you loved it in 2016, and now all of a sudden some evangelicals are tired of the fight. But look, I think these times demand a fighter. Now the question then becomes, in what form, what version, Ron DeSantis is clearly a fighter. Maybe they right. just want a different style as well.
1: Well, and the, the, you know, this is this has literally become you know kind of the meme of choose your fighter. You know, that that's literally what this is. That's right. That's right. And and so I think it's fair to say you know that um, it's not that conservatives are tired of fighting. Um, in fact, I think we've been so frustrated with the weak and feckless politicians who are just standing down, and that's that is what we loved about Donald Trump in 2016 and in 2020. And so now it just becomes are we are we ready to to um, switch out pitchers, you know, to put this in, in the baseball analogy and say, all right, you know, let's l- relieve the guy who, you know, was on the mound. I mean, Trump is running basically as the incumbent, um, but but he's not genuinely the incumbent anymore. Um, he does have to win an open primary, even though, you know, he's running on more of an incumbent, but also outsider status, which is interesting. But, um, you know, does this become, you know, you, you switch out Uh, because you're thankful for you know what the pitcher has done so far but you sub in you know kind of that fresh athlete and and in our case I think it's going to be interesting but you know in just the last about minute and a half um, that I have with you David Brody um, what I think is so great and in and and important about this conversation is that we need to be talking openly about these, these angles and talking truthfully and objectively about the good, the bad, and the ugly about everybody and not just get so siloed into this tribalistic team mentality. You know, I'm seeing people who are very pro-Trump slamming Ron DeSantis for, you know, stuff that's like base that, you know, you'd expect from a leftist Twitter troll. And, you know, I'm not saying as much on the DeSantis side probably just because he hasn't announced yet. But I think that that kind of mudslinging back and forth is really disingenuous, and we don't need to be doing that as we approach the primary.
2: Well, I, I agree. I agree with that kind of like as in, in a theory class, if you will, but, but in practice, it's so hard. And when you have two alpha males in the ring... You know, what are you going to do? Look, Ron DeSantis isn't taking his orders from anybody other than himself and obviously his wife, Casey. I mean, the work as a team, clearly. Um, and, and and Donald Trump has taken orders from Donald Trump. So yep. so this idea that, uh, that the tone is being set by others, I think the tone is being set by these two alpha males who are in it to win it. And they're going to fight, and that's part of it. And I think we have to kind of come to terms with that. The question is, how do we, how do you fight fair and, and well, ultimately achieve the ultimate and, goal? And I think
1: we're going to all end up with a few black eyes. But, you know, hey, that's the sport of politics. So we'll continue to talk about this more. David Brody, uh, Chief Political Analyst for CBN. Always appreciate you joining us on the program. Follow us at Jenna Ellis AM on Twitter. You can also reach us at Jenna at AFR.net. I will see you on Monday.